Hey, it's Dan, host of Trapital. We're working hard on our upcoming Trapital report. And it's going to be released at the end of October, so stay tuned for that. We're going to go deep into a number of different trends in this report, like streaming, recorded music revenue trends, live music, and where we are now that we've officially had a year plus post-pandemic, short-form video wars, a few analyses on major company exits, and a few startups to look at for the unicorns and soon-to-be unicorns in the space, some of the most valuable songs in the world, generative AI, country music's year, and a whole lot more. You can download this report directly from the Trapital newsletter once it's live at the end of the month. We'll also include a link to the Trapital report once it's live in these show notes, so stay tuned for that. There's no opt-in. Whether you liked or loved or didn't really care or even know about U2, you got that song of Innocence out. Hey, welcome to Trapital. I'm your host, Dan Runcy. This is your place to gain insights on the business that shapes music, media, and culture. We dive deep into the companies and moguls who start the trends that shape the rest of the business world. This episode is a deep dive on Apple, the most influential company in music in the 21st century. And music has been the most influential part of Apple's comeback as well. Think back to 1997. Jobs just came back to a company that was worth $2.3 billion, and today, that company is worth well over $2.3 trillion. And a lot of that comeback is thanks to music, with the launch of products like iTunes and the iPod in 2001, the iTunes Music Store in 2003, the iPhone in 2007, and how the iPod really was the foundation for so much of the continued influence that this company has had even up to today with some of the more recent moves that have happened in the streaming era with Apple Music, the acquisition of Beats by Dre, and so many more moves. To break it all down, I'm joined by friend of the pod, Zach O'Malley-Greenberg, and we take you through this journey. We talk about some of the fun stories, some of the background, how we got here, and some of the most influential steps along the way, and answer some of the core questions as well. What were some of the overlooked opportunities that don't get talked about as much? What would Steve Jobs today think about Apple's current music strategy and more? So come with us. Let's take a trip down memory lane and revisit Apple's journey through music and how it revolutionized this industry. All right, today we got a big episode on our hands. We're diving deep into Apple and its journey through music. Zach, how are you feeling about this one? Oh, I feel great. Let's do it. I was really excited to talk to you about this conversation and started from a personal place first because I know that you're someone that grew up in an Apple household and you're someone that had a lot of Mac products and definitely different than I was when I was growing up. At least I think I had more PC products, but did you own any of these products? A Newton PDA, a Macintosh LC, a PowerBook, or Macintosh TV? The PowerBook was my first computer. I was in like third or fourth grade or something. Uh, the old, the old power books, like the gray one with the sort of with the ridges and, um, you know, it, it felt like, <laughs> like there was probably like that much plastic and then like this much screen, you know, <laughs> it was the ratio of plastic to screen was about one to one, but, uh, I had that, I had a Mac desktop, did not have a Newton. Um, but, uh, eventually, eventually got the Apple TV. I think I've only ever owned the only non Mac device I owned was I, I had like a, like a Quantex, I don't know, like in high school, a lot of my friends are really into gaming. And so they, they convinced me that it was much cheaper and better and faster. It was like Quantex, I don't know, it's defunct brand, but, um, 
but yeah, there was like a few years in there where I was a, where I was a PC guy and then I've been Apple uh, all the way ever since. So I don't know. How about you? I feel like a few of those items you mentioned could probably sell for like thousands of dollars. They're like eBay relics right now, just considering how many units were probably sold at the time. Oh, my stepmom gave away my old Apple uh, PowerBook. I'm so sad. I think I had SimCity on there. Oh man, it was it was good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the things that at least both Mac and PC users had SimCity there. But yeah, I didn't have any of those products. And I think that probably rings true with just some of the place where this conversation is going to go, because it's important to talk about Apple and its journey through music by starting in the 90s. And as most people know, if you're listening to this podcast, you know that the 90s were not the best period for Apple. Their market value dropped 80% from 1992 to 1997. This company was only worth around $2 billion, $2.3 billion, I believe was a 1997 market cap. And there were some tough times. There was different leadership. You had um, John Scully had left. You had a few different CEOs that had short time frame. And it really isn't until 1997, Steve Jobs comes back in power. And his big thing is we need to simplify things. We need to update our software and we need to get with the times and bring this company back on track. And I think I had the first iPod, I had the first iPhone. I think I've never not had an iPhone. Even I, as an inveterate Mac user, was drifting uh, during that period before Steve Jobs came back and, and you know, kind of put things in order. And, uh, you know, so I never really thought about it at the time, but I think that that sort of, um, you know, the, the efforts that he undertook, you know, must have brought me back in the fold as well after my brief dalliance with PCs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really brought me into the fold too, because I didn't own any Apple products before this. They were in schools in our classrooms, mm -hmm. but that was, that was about it. But it's important to know too, that this was also a decade where Microsoft was booming and Windows 95 and T98 just continued to have more and more success. So it really wasn't just Apple as any of the other non-Microsoft Windows based companies that were trying to either have their own proprietary or unique things, whether it was Atari or other companies that were struggling. And Jobs really honed in on how they could simplify their product and how they could just get things to be easy for the consumer. Because I think that was a thing. Apple products were often thought to be a bit more complex, a bit like you needed to have a PhD or you're probably in a more educated household in order to get it. And it just wasn't as easy. And even before we get to the things in music, I think the iMac was a big push in that direction. Obviously, it stuck out from a design perspective. You had all of the multicolor fluorescent um, screens and the casing there. But I think that product still was a little bit niche, relatively speaking. But I think it at least was a, hey, a good statement to be like, okay, this is a new era. I'm back. And it set the stage for everything that came after that. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you kind of think about like uh, some of the, the pop culture aspects um, uh, of Apple and, you know, even, like, even in Mission Impossible, they had, uh, was it Ving Rhames had, had a an Apple, like, like one of the cool new power books, like all black, um, you know, on the, you know, he's like hacking into stuff on the, on the TGV, you know, on the bullet, <laughs> on the bullet train in the channel and stuff like that. So, um, you know, even in addition to music, they, they were pretty savvy about product placement and, you know, trying to find ways of, of getting some of those products out there. But yeah, I think the, the iMac, you know, especially the desktop version, um, they were able to really break the mold with that. And, you know, because I think before then, 
computer, a computer is just a computer. And, you know, unless you were like a really big nerd who liked making your own computers and, you know, you had, you had like cutouts and special lights and things like that, you know, uh, the, the, the average consumer wasn't just into the aesthetic of the computer. It was, it was more about functionality, but, but certainly with, um, with the iMac and you had, they look like jelly beans, you know, uh, the, the different computers there. So, um, you know, I think that focus on marketing really began to set Apple apart, uh, even before music became such a, a big uh, aspect. The iMac and its standout as a product was part of Jobs's whole entire ideal to limit the number of SKUs, simplify the product. And that was from the hardware perspective. But one of the more big opportunities for Apple at the time was to improve things on the software end too. So Apple launches Mac OS X, which is meant to get with the times in the same way that Windows is clearly doing with its products. But Apple also wants to get more involved with software more broadly because they see the potential there and just the potential to expand beyond some of the limitations of having everything solely only available for Apple computer and hardware users. So with that, in 1999, they see an opportunity in music because that year, SoundJam MP launches, and this is an MP3 player that gets a bunch of attention at Macworld and other places. It's native to the Mac um, users. And this is also the time, as I mentioned, Napster MP3 file sharing is really quite popular. People are downloading all these songs, but Napster isn't necessarily the best place to listen to them. But you also have people that now have the ability to upload the CDs that they're listening to into their computers, but there wasn't a home base to do that. So that launches 1999. And then by 2000, they're already starting to have discussions where the Apple team, and this is a pattern we'll see, which we'll talk about, but the Apple team says, hey, you're building something and you already have something successful that we want to be able to get involved with. Let's see how we can team up. They team up. Apple ends up acquiring SoundJam MP, and then that leads to one of the first big innovations, which is the launch of their online jukebox store, as they called it, uh, and the launch of iTunes. So to be clear, this wasn't the iTunes store yet. That comes a few years later, but this was the launch of iTunes as a native MP3 player. Some of the rumors at the time thought it was going to be called iMusic, which would have been interesting to see how that played out. But it officially launched at the beginning of the beginning of January 2001 as iTunes. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's important to remember at the time, you know, a lot of people were uh, doing Napster and illegal file sharing and all that. But Steve Jobs said something that I really agree with, which is that, you know, something on the order of 80% of the people who were doing illegal downloading weren't doing it, you know, necessarily to skirt the rules. It was just the best way to listen to digital music. And if there had been a better user experience where you could pay for it, you know, they, they were ready to do it. And so I think, but, you know, at least the, the iTunes player to begin with, um, you know, kind of started to change uh, that narrative, right? Like if, if there was a way that, you know, you, you could listen to something um, and it was a little more seamless, you know, you wouldn't necessarily have to, to go and get everything legally. And I think that really paved the way ultimately for uh, some of the other Apple forays into the into the music business. And I think that spoke to just the ability of people also being able to rip and burn their CDs, because this is when CD burners also started to pick up and speakers that people had on their home desktops were also improving. So things were clearly pivoting towards the computer as opposed to your boombox or as opposed to other platforms, be in a central location for you to listen to music. Again, that is 
desktop and it's stuck in your and it's in your home, but it's not necessarily as mobile as what would come in terms of MP3 players itself. And that's probably another interesting place to talk about just laying the land for where MP3 players were at the time, because in the mid nineties, they started to pop up more, but most of these were flash based players. They were pretty small and they could only hold a CD's worth of songs, if that. So they just weren't necessarily something that was mobile and anything that was much bigger was quite clunky. And there was also an issue with how long it took for songs to download from those um, MP3 players. If you're trying to transfer it from that, from your computer to your MP3 player, it just ended up taking a lot of time. And that's when Apple says, hey, what if we end up building our own MP3 player? That's better than all of these other ones on the market. Yeah, and then that's, of course, we get the, the iPods. You know, I remember when that first came out, you know, what was it, something like 300 songs? Holy cow, you know, <laughs> uh, revolutionary. But, um, but you know, in typical Apple fashion, they they did simplify the MP3, you know, uh, listening experience, and they made beautiful hardware. And I think that's, you know, I think that's what uh, initially excited people. Remember, like, the wheel, you know, the, the click wheel, uh, in those early iPods, and you know, that was something that, that didn't really exist in any of the other um, existing MP3 players. Uh, you know, of course, they transitioned away from that to the the touch wheel, and obviously, eventually, the touch screen. But um, you know, I think that um, it was beautiful. Again, just like the the iMac, and and I think the aesthetics played you know quite a role in a way that kind of um, uh, presages. It, you know, what happened with Beats and, you know, the desire to create something that's not just electronics, but fashion as well. And I think that, you know, the iPod in the early days, um, it, it was fashion, right? I mean, if you think of those early commercials, you know, the with the, uh, the like the, the white headphones and the white wires that came out of it. And, you know, in those days, everybody else, I guess, was black headphones and black wires. And so, you know, if you were jamming out with your white wires, that, mean, that meant that you had the iPod that you, you know, you had this sort of like aesthetically advanced music player, um, which is kind of silly when you think about it, all it does is play music, but I guess same for a computer. And um, and as we learned, same for, you know, for, for a lot of things um, on the hardware side. So, I, you know, I think I think the iPod, uh, iPod really kind of launched, you know, <laughs> launched a thousand ships on the, on the aesthetic front, you know, when it came to hardware. Yeah, and it's cool to look back and just think about how each aspect of this was just perfect timing, perfect design, perfect everything to have it. And of course, that original slogan of a thousand songs in your pocket, although I don't know anyone that ever quite got to a thousand, to be clear, just because of how big some of those files ended up being and some of the natural storage that needed to exist on the platform. But they were able to get the whole five gigabyte uh, or the five gigabit mini hard drive from Toshiba. They get that, and then that then leads to the formation of the iPod. And they also work on the design. They get Tony Fidel, who was working at Philips at the time. They had codenamed it um, P98. That's what they were calling it internally. And they bring him on as a hardware consultant. He only has a short amount of time to get this done, but they're working you know, night and day to make this thing happen. And there's some interesting stories, if you ever read about it, about them being down in Cupertino, but... The team that was working on the iPod was in a bit more of a dingier warehouse, but it kind of felt like it made them a bit more gritty from that perspective. And it's important to think, too, because obviously the Apple demo days and Steve Jobs being up on stage has become the thing of lore. And they made a whole movie about it, The uh, that Steve Jobs movie with Michael Fassbender. It's literally based on Jobs doing these pitches. But that first one that he did on 
the i on the iPod. Um, it's available on YouTube for anyone that's listening. It didn't get a lot of the fanfare that people initially thought because as we started this conversation with a lot of those random devices and the new PDA and stuff like that, some of the sentiment was, oh, here Apple goes again with another random held handheld device. How is this thing going to work? But like you said, this thing was beautiful. They put just as much thought into the design with anything else. It was so perfectly timed and it was also a bit clever in a way because while platforms like Napster and Kazaa and other ones were clearly providing a decent amount of the music that was being used on these services at the time, Apple wasn't necessarily facing much of the brunt there because A, anytime they were buying or administering the sale of music was done legally and they weren't involved with any of the piracy necessarily themselves. They may have been a vehicle for a lot of people to listen to what they had pirated music on, whether it was iTunes or um, iPod, but they weren't necessarily deep in it. And I think that was an interesting way that the company was able to navigate those waters. Yeah. And things changed, you know, over the years. I mean, I remember in the early iPod days, uh, you know, a little icon, you plugged it into your Mac, um, a little icon would appear on the desktop and it just said iPod. And then you could sort of like use it like a, like an external hard drive almost. Um, but, but they eventually made it a lot less sort of user friendly in a way, you know, uh, maybe they made it a little simpler, but the, you know, it was a little harder to, to, uh, let's say move bootleg songs around. And, um, you know, I think to some extent that represents the concessions that Apple made, to the music business in order to, you know, to, to kind of get to the forefront. The iTunes store, ultimately, if you think about how music was consumed at the time, it was like really album based, right? People were downloading uh, songs, people downloading albums. But um, in the in the late 90s, early aughts, like you had these sort of like massive albums that were, you know, 15, 20 tracks and they weren't even double albums, you know? Uh, and, uh, and then you had double albums that were 30 or 40 tracks or something crazy like that. So, you know, there was sort of like a, a question of quality, right? And I remember interviewing somebody, uh, a music lawyer who said he went with a client to a record label to discuss the latest album that had been turned in. And the record executive's response was like, basically, this is too good. All you need on an album are two dance tracks and a humping song. <laughs> <laughs> and then the rest should be filler. And, and, um, and so, you know, the, basically save the rest of this for your next album. And I think that, you know, the record business in a lot of ways uh, just kind of got fat off of this model and, you know, wasn't really emphasizing um, quality in the way that it should have been or that it used to. And, uh, you know, I think a consequence of, um iTunes and the ability to to download you know songs one by one, which of course the music does not want to be able to do, and, and it was kind of miraculous that, that Apple was able to to kind of like extract that concession. Um, but you know, I think sort of in the wake of the iTunes Store launch, you started to see, I mean, like it changed the way that albums were constructed, um, and, and, and you know, and suddenly like over a few years anyway. You start to see a lot more nine and ten and eleven track albums, but they were a little more densely packed quality, and uh, you know not so much of the filler. And of course, now you're seeing it move back again toward you know twenty song albums because it's sort of like a playlist and you get more streams and blah blah blah. But um, but it's it's fascinating to me how Apple had this impact not only of how music was consumed but how it was put together, um, just by virtue 
of, of how it was consumed. The most powerful platforms in this industry change music itself, right? Music has always adapted to its medium, whether you have the pre-CD era with cassettes and vinyl, and even before vinyl, when so much of it was based off of the live business of people recording, then, as you mentioned, CD, CD sales decline, and then we see the impact of digital downloads and a little mix of ringtones in there and how things clearly adapt for that. And yeah, in streaming now, whether it's, as you mentioned, these longer albums, songs also just getting shorter as well to maximize the 30 to 31 second threshold that all of the digital streaming providers require to register a song as having a stream. All of these things shape the product we listen to. And iTunes has always been the fascinating one because, again, I think that for as much, for as many issues that the music industry had with Napster and all the piracy and issues there, I'd argue that iTunes Music Store had an even bigger influence than the piracy did. And part of that stems back to the point you made that a lot of the use of peer-to-peer -peer music piracy and file sharing wasn't necessarily because people wanted to do something illegal. It's because it just happened to be the way that people were consuming things. And some of the conversations that Jobs had around the time were prescient because this was before the iTunes music launch. He talks to the folks at AOL Time Warner, and he's telling them, because at the time they were still connected with Warner Music Group, and he's telling them, you got it all wrong. This is back when the labels were trying to push MusicNet and press play. These were some of the more online music things that they had at the time that like Doug Morris and other executives were pushing. And Jobs was saying that, no, he wants consumers to buy online music in big numbers. And Jobs, of course, I think has been this revered figure, but we also know Steve Jobs is someone that wasn't afraid to bite someone's head off and get quite angry if you disagree with people. And there's this one quote that I have that sticks out here. This was, um, I read it from a Rolling Stone interview in uh, 2011. This was uh, right around the time or right before the time that Jobs had passed, but it was Kevin Gage, um, the Warner's uh, technology VP at the time. And Jobs said to him, you've got your head stuck up your ass so many times, cut him off mid presentation. And his whole sentiment is that you all have this music thing wrong. You need to give your songs to Apple and let us sell them individually and that's what he pushed and his biggest push point was the price because itunes at the time was like a full album is 9.99 a single is a dollar and that is one of the things that did become a big argument and a big discussion point with the music industry for some time because people felt like they were giving it away too cheaply and it wasn't until a few years later that Apple and iTunes music store did increase some flexibility. And I think there may have been some songs that were available for like a dollar twenty-nine and stuff like that. But it was still quite cheap, even compared to ringtones when ringtones are blowing up. Some ringtones cost four or five dollars for a 25, 20 second clip of a song versus you can get an entire song on iTunes for a dollar. So there was these interesting things there. But yeah, Jobs was definitely ruthless. But I do think that his sharpness and his charm is also why he was able to close some of these deals that many other music platforms and services at the time tried to get the music industry to license their content to companies. And they said no to them for the most part, but they said yes to um, jobs and Apple. Yeah. And I think first and foremost, what he recognizes that, you know, part of the reason people were going to those legal downloads is because they just wanted the humping track. You know, they just wanted the, the two dance tracks or something. And, you know, maybe they weren't going to pay for the whole album 
physically or on iTunes, but they would have just as soon paid a dollar or a dollar twenty nine for the humping track or the dance tracks, uh, at, you know, as gone and downloaded them from Napster or Quasar or whatever. And you know, and and I think eventually, you know, obviously the, the record label. Uh, record labels kind of figured that out that he was right he wasn't right about everything of course and um was not a big fan of, of streaming but uh, we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit i assume yeah it's interesting i mean so this service launches it launches in 2003 they only had 20,000 songs by 2008 that four million songs on the service at that point and i mean this is also where we just start to see the big delta happen where the music industry's value just goes down, 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 down. Apple's value just goes up, 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 up. Early 2000s, Apple's market cap is around $8 billion. So it grew a lot from the $2.3 billion that it was when it almost went bankrupt in 1997. And then by the end of the decade, it's at $80 billion. I mean, it's in the trillions now, but at the end of the decade, at least in the 2000s, it was right around 80 billion. The music industry did the exact opposite peak mid. Um, I think it was like 23, 24 billion dollars, like 1999, 2000 by 2014, it's $7 billion. So it goes in the exact opposite direction. So obviously music has tons of value, but who accrued that value? It wasn't the recorded music industry. It was Apple that accrued the value. Yeah. And I guess you, you could argue, uh, it, you know, it wasn't necessarily that, that, Apple was like siphoning value off, but you could say that maybe in this case, um, the hardware business was a better business to be in than the content business, right? Especially at a period of time when there was this, you know, it's almost like a new medium, uh, like we see every so often in, in music, um, you know, the CD comes out, everybody has to go go out and, and rebuy all the stuff that they had on vinyl or cassette and they're buying all these CDs. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just like, boom, because everybody's kind of doubling up or tripling up on stuff they already own. Um, you know, in a way, it's like this new device comes into, into play and, you know, everybody has to go out and get one, um, except, you know, this thing costs hundreds of dollars, not 10 or 20 bucks. Uh, so, you know, um, I guess it makes sense that that the hardware business could be more lucrative than the content business when you look at it that way now. Because this is also where we start to see more of the trend that I think is pretty much de facto for most um, tech companies where the content in some ways is either a loss leader or it's something to get people in the door to be able to sell the more expensive service, whatever it is. In Apple's case, it ends up being hardware because by 2011, the iTunes store had sold right about that point, it was 10 billion tracks total. So if you assume each of those are a dollar, that's $10 billion. Still quite impressive over eight-year runs, but that isn't what gave Apple that $80 billion market cap. It's selling the iPods. It's selling all of the iPod iterations. And then it's also the launch of the iPhone itself. So each of these things, I think, really spoke to it. And then just to add a few numbers there about how impactful the iTunes Music Store was, in, 19, in, in um, 2000, the... U.S. sales for albums were 943 million, so just shy of a billion. By 2011, that number is cut in half to 500 million compared to 819 million sales of digital downloads for singles. So completely upended the industry. And I don't have the exact stats for the platforms that benefited from it the most. I know that there were Amazon and some other players, but most of that went to iTunes and the music store. Yeah, and another thing that I'm curious about uh, you know, you alluded to this, but, but sort of, you know, the iTunes store and iTunes, you know, and the iPod is sort of like the gateway drug to Apple, 
and you know how did I mean, it's probably hard to kind of pick the signal out of the noise but like i'm sure that um the sales of macbooks and you know apple computers was going up over that time just you know anecdotally right like it became sort of the default um for like a certain upwardly mobile college you know educated type of, like to, that you know you go around college campuses and everybody's got a, a mac but you know, how much of that was because people got pulled into that ecosystem by the iTunes store, by the iPod. Um, yeah, I don't know that we'll ever fully know, but it had to have been, you know, considerable amount, right? Um, it just, it's, it just makes you part of that ecosystem. And of course, a Apple's a little bit grabby about that ecosystem and it doesn't play so nice with other software. And, you know, um, so, you know, they, they really, uh, it's like a carrot and the stick sort of thing, but it, it makes your life easier if you have all Apple products um, and they do interact pretty seamless, seamlessly with each other for the most part. But, you know, if you started out with that, with, yeah, with that, you know, that iPod or, Apple, you know, getting your music in the, in the uh, iTunes store, you know, I think you're a lot more likely to go out and buy a, a MacBook eventually too. I think you're right because this was part of the strategy as well. Jobs had seen this and the broader Apple team had seen this and they wanted to see it could be a test. Could the iPod and iTunes itself be the gateway? And I can say personally that it was for me because I didn't grow up in a Mac household. But by the time that the iPod came out, it still wasn't in 2001 that I got it. The big shift was 2003 because, of course, it was the iTunes store, but that was also when they had the iPods that were then available for PC because for those first two years, it was only compatible with Macs. It made it compatible with PCs. And then they also have a smaller product at a lower price point, which is the iPod mini. And I believe that was $249 or $250. So when that comes out, that hits a bit more of my target price range where I think at the time it's like, okay, I don't know if I'm going to drop $400. That's one paycheck that I'm getting at Dairy Queen right now. <laughs> but if I can use a part of that to then get this iPod mini, okay, now we're in business. So that was I think part of it for me. And then, so that came, so by 2003, 2004, was still using the PC, but it probably wasn't until the early 2010s, I would say that I probably got my first um, MacBook Air, but I think that there was a lot of adoption there with that happening. And it may not have happened maybe as soon or as fluidly as the Apple team thought, but I think a lot of people did eventually just get there over time because, yeah, the fact that each of the services and the products themselves played so nicely with each other and intentionally didn't with other things, that is, of course, the ultimate feature and not a bug that all those things come true, even in the slightest annoying things we see today, like someone shows up in the group text with the Android and then you see oh. the green bubble and it's like so-and-so <laughs> liked the message and it's just the most annoying text message that you could get in this group chat. All those things are by design. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and yeah, it, it continues to this day and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's in the DNA. Uh, but, you know, I do wonder if all those products at some point started to cannibalize each other, right? Uh, you had your, your iPod, you know, you had your iPod mini, then you had the iPod shuffle, you know, it started to get more and more um, slicing and dicing. And, you know, it was always, the argument was always like, oh, you're going running, you want to listen to music, you know, but like this thing is much better. I mean, you know, I go running with my iPhone now, which is huge. So, 
you know, why did we really need an iPod mini or an iPod shuffle to go running with? I mean, I never really kind of bought into that anyway, but, um, but I guess a lot of people did. And, you know, and again, Apple, you know, typical Apple playbook, right? Like everything's in jewel tones, beautiful colors. There's a marketing, you know, it, it became kind of like a fashion accessory, um, like an athleisure fashion accessory, as much as it was really like a, a piece of utilitarian hardware, I think. And I feel like it started to honestly get a bit into the challenges that Apple had in the 90s, where you had all of these products that were slight deriv derivations of different things you had. And I can't speak to the actual cannibalization aspect. I mean, I think intuitively it, it makes sense, but I know it's probably one of those things that's hard to know how, what the sales actually look like. But I agree. I think it did get a bit confusing there. And I think that we saw over time that they did simplify these products, but they still did have some special products they had over time. And we probably can't talk about this too deeply without getting into the marketing aspect of it. And I know you talked about the white headphones, which I think was a big piece of this, the iconic commercials. But I think we also have to talk about one music group that did play a pretty big role in terms of Apple and its marketing and its promotion. And that's you too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, would the iPod really have ever taken off in the way that it did if it weren't for those early iconic commercials? Uh, you know, hello, hello, da, 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 vertigo. It's the, you know, Bono in the flesh right here. But um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it really, put, you know, to the, the idea that a rock band of that stature would, would do something like so corporate um, and still feel so authentic. I mean, it, it was pretty unprecedented. I thought that just, it was like a sexy commercial. I mean, and it, it really, it broke, I think the iPod, but also broke that song. Vertigo came out in 2004, right? Like it was the same deal. And, um, you know, I'm sure there were people here and there who, who had their qualms and selling out and all that, but I mean, it, it just seemed like it really fit and they, and it, they did it in such an authentic way that, um, you know, it, it really kind of boosted both. And, you know, they had the, the YouTube, iPod, you know, the, the uh, black and red iPod, you know, it, it just all kind of um, came together, you know, in this way. And it, again, you know, it, it's a funnel, right? You, you get the shine of U2 rubs off on the iPod. It brings more people into the Apple ecosystem, into the iTunes store, you know, they're, they're buying, you know, eventually going to get iPhones and MacBooks and so on. And so, uh, you know, I mean, Gosh, I, I'm I'm really curious about the the economics of that you know of that deal, right? Did um, did you know how much did uh, Apple ultimately pay you two for that? Because you know, honestly, it was a great deal for both of them. They could <laughs> you two could have done it for free and still would have been worth it. So, um, you know, I, I think that really got the iPod uh, you know off the ground and moving, and you know, Apple and really kind of like underscored Apple's association with music, you know, kind of indefinitely. And I have some good backstory for that for you. Um, a couple of years ago, Bono had did a interview with The Guardian, and he was doing a tell-all about each of these things. And what he said was this. He said they initially wanted to have their song in an Apple commercial the same way that they had had with others. And Jobs and Bono were like, you know how like Drake and LeBron are like, oh man, I love what you're doing. I love what you're doing. It's like, you know, they want to be them. They want to be, them. it's like, it was that whole thing that the two of these, that the two of them had for each other. But 
uh, Kimi Iveen was actually helping to discuss um, what, what was involved with some of these talks at the time. And the thing is, you two had a few concessions before they just, you know, gave the song away. They, in many ways, felt like, okay, the song we have Vertigo, I think, will be perfect for Apple and to be able to be released here as an exclusive single that we have on iTunes. But one of their concessions was they didn't just want to have the music in the song with these black silhouettes. They wanted to be in the commercial. So, of course, there's a famous thing, like you're saying, you know, Bono has his hands stretched out. Hello, how long? That whole thing, right? So they got that. And Jobs said, yes, fine for that. Then during those whole discussions, the band comes back and they says, hey, you know, we don't want cash for this, but could you give us some Apple stock? And uh... Jobs was like, no, that's a deal breaker. <laughs> and then they're like, okay, all right. Well, if you can't give us stock and we don't want cash, can you give us our own iPod version? Can you make them <laughs> release our own iPod version? And then Jobs was like, wait, really? I mean, the iPod's white. You want this red? You want you want a black iPod? Like, people aren't going like, to want that. And But then he was like, all right, we'll take a risk. We'll see how it goes. I don't have the sales numbers, but it seems like that was how they ended up working things out. So it was the ultimate, hey, pay me for the exposure. Pay me for this. You try to get a little bit more. And it just didn't quite get there. But imagine if you too had gotten a bit of a stake in Apple there. Granted, Apple is a public company at that point. But like I said earlier, this is the point where this company is still much lower market cap than it was at, you know, by the time it did. They definitely could have, you know, 10x by the end of the decade. And then obviously now Apple is worth $2.3 trillion. So imagine that. Yeah, even if they had just taken the cash payment and invested it in Apple stock, you know, I mean, just through uh, Fidelity or whatever, you know, that probably would have worked out pretty nicely for them uh, and maybe better than the uh, U2 iPod. I'm sure that did well enough, right? I mean, if you look on eBay, actually, uh, people are still selling those for like 150 bucks or something. I mean, I think it's a bit of a collector's item. I, I don't know how many they actually uh, ultimately, you know, um, produced, but or what or what YouTube's royalty was on it but uh, I kind of think they would have done better just taking the payment in cash If you love Trapital you should check out what our friends at Disgraceland have cooking up It's an award-winning music and true crime podcast with a brand new season all about Wu-Tang Clan episodes about RZA, Method Man, Raekwon, Ghostface Killer fighting for their lives and getting involved in all sorts of stuff Listen if you know anything about hip-hop, you know that these are some wild boys. And Disgraceland does what it does best, and it dissects and breaks down the stories behind the musicians that we've grown and loved. They've done deep dives and covered many artists like Fleetwood Mac, Tupac, Grateful Dead, Billie Holiday, Charles Manson, Taylor Swift, Rolling Stones, Kirk Cobain and Courtney Love, Amy Winehouse, and more. But this season is the first serialized one that they've done on the full story of Wu-Tang Clan over 10 episodes. New episodes come out every Tuesday and Thursday. Follow and listen to Disgraceland for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I think it is an important point just to talk about those commercials in general. Like we said, I think that U2 was so iconic with them, but... There are also smaller bands at the time, like whether it was Jet, Are You Gonna Be My Girl was really big in those commercials. Um, you had Gorillaz um, with Feel Good Inc. Uh, you also had Coldplay with Viva La Vida a couple years after. By that point, you're getting more into the iPod Touch era and the iPod itself. But 
I feel like that's probably a good time to talk about that product because that product, music and the iPod was the foundation for what gave us the iPhone. Yeah, you know, I remember when that came out and, you know, people were getting kind of excited about it. And I was kind of like, I don't really care about, you know, the interface of like whether I'm doing the, the touch or the wheel or whatever, uh, as long as I can play my music. But obviously, once it got to that point, I just remember thinking like, okay, obviously they're going to do a, a cell phone next, right? Because this is, this looks like a phone. All they need to do is add some of their uh, capacity to it. And, and suddenly you have like a game changer. I just remember waiting. I was like, I'm not going to get a new iPod until, until they create the iPhone. It was just like, you could see that they were going to do it. It was the only logical next step. And, um, and, you know, and in a funny way, I think the, the iPhone made the iPod obsolete, but then, uh, but then you had the iPad, which is essentially just a giant iPod, right? Uh, I mean, that does a lot of other things, but, um, you know, and then you have like the iPad Pro and all this, you know, how many different sizes of, of essentially the same thing does Apple produce at this point? I think a lot of it happened after Steve Jobs died and there was like a movement away from simplicity and kind of adding a lot more different SKUs. But, but, um, but yeah, I think, you know, once the, the iPod touch happened, it was, it was just inevitable that the iPhone was, you know, the next thing up. Yeah. And then even some of the branding and the discussion from the press release was so rooted in the iPod, which was clear. This is a quote that I pulled from the initial iPhone press release. iPhone is a widescreen iPod with touch controls that lets music lovers touch their music by easily scrolling through an entire list of songs, artists, albums, and playlists with just the flick of a flick, flick of a finger. Album artwork is stunningly presented on iPhone's large and vibrant display. So that was the whole thing, right? I actually forget the exact timing of whether or not the iPod Touch came before or after the initial iPhone launch, but I feel like that was a bit of the groundbreaking thing there in terms of, okay, now you can touch and now you can see these things in these clear, beautiful ways because before it was always the click wheel, but now it's a touch screen. Oh, maybe it did come after. Well, at any rate, whether or not it was the, you know, the iPod Touch or just sort of the iPod in general, at some point it became pretty clear that they were going to be able to turn this thing into a phone, right? Yeah. And I know at first you mentioned that you, 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 know, you weren't quite sure where it was going to go, but I guess I'm curious from your perspective, when did you first get the iPhone? And, and by the time you got it, how many iPods did you have if you had had multiple? Uh... I think, I mean, I got the first iPhone whenever it came out, which was, I want to say, 07 or 08, right? Um, and it was, I think, right after I had graduated college, it was like that fall or something. Um, and, you know, there's this argument that uh, the generational divide between millennials and Gen X is not whatever year it is that they keep moving it around, but it was like, did you have a iPhone in college, you know, and I mean, or a smartphone um, of some kind. And I really do think that's an important um, distinction, right? I mean, it, it was such a game changer. And even that first iPhone didn't have anywhere near the kind of capabilities that, that the iPhones have now or that other smartphones have, but just like, um, you know, just again, like triumph of engineering. It was beautiful. It was like rounded silver, you know, and, and it could do all these things that, that, uh, that your phone couldn't do before, but, um, you know, having apps on it, you know, all that kind of thing, um, in the way that it did. So, 
I really think that, you know, you could, you could make an argument for, for the iPhone generation, uh, the smartphone generation, uh, you know, as much as you could for labels like Gen X or Millennial or, or, or what have you. You mentioned the App Store. That piece stands out because that, again, is Apple investing in its software and being able to make that something that they can monetize. Of course, something like iTunes, it was monetized quite differently where first it's just the MP3 player, then they open the store and Apple is clearly getting a cut of all of the sales that happen from the individual music downloads there. But then with the App Store, this is obviously something that Apple has become quite notorious for in some ways. That 30% cut that they get of any subscription that is done for any type of app or service, and even today, whether it's Spotify or any platforms that are through Epic Games or any of the companies that have legendarily tried to push back and fight on this, few of them have actually won. And there's quite a bit of controversy, of course, but Apple's services business, I do think music was a big piece of that. And obviously the App Store and a music app with Pandora was one of the first to be on the or be available to download through the app store. So it has just continued to carry through in that way. I'd be so curious to look at the numbers of how much profit Apple generates simply off of their 30% cut of Spotify subscriptions versus Spotify's total profit. You know, I mean, what, what a, what a wild um, competitive scenario where you could have, you know, that kind of a cut of, of your biggest competitors uh fees and you know and it's it's probably mostly pure profit right i mean it's not like you know that there's like a, some kind of production cost that goes into that so um you know it's like infinitely scalable and uh yeah i mean app store you know i think similarly game game changer but also you know would you really have it, the app store if it had been for the itunes store playing that groundwork um, you know, I don't think so. So it all, it all goes back to this, you know, building thing on top of each other with Apple music. And I think with that too, it's probably a good time to talk about streaming, but I think before we get into Apple music itself, just where Apple was with regards to where things are happening with where things are happening in the industry, because by the time you get to 2009, 2010, of course, you know, jobs is sick by this point, but he was also still leading this company and was quite adamant about where music was going. I think the past 10 years worked in his favor in terms of how his company captured value and how prescient he was and pushing back on all of the label heads to be able to be, to be able to say, hey, this is what we need to do. Your services aren't cutting it and this is the price it needs to be. But the one place where there's clearly a divide was with music streaming and with online subscriptions. And he has this quote that he had about music streaming that I want to share. People have told us over and over and over again, they don't want to rent their music. Just to make that perfectly clear, music is not like video. Your favorite movie, you may watch 10 times in your life. Your favorite song, you're going to listen to a thousand times in your life. If it costs you $10 a month or over $100 a year for a subscription fee to rent that song, that means for me to listen to my favorite song in 10 years, I paid over $1,000 in subscription fees to listen to my favorite song 10 years from now. And that just doesn't fly with customers. Customer, they don't want subscriptions, end quote. So not only did he generally believe this, like he was quite passionate. He believed that people should own their music and that fans should own their music. And to some extent, yes, fans do enjoy owning their music. But 
we clearly see with where music has gone and where Apple itself went after Jobs had passed away in 2011, that that wasn't the future and where things ended up going. Yeah, you know, I think he was right to some extent. Um, if you are a big music person, you probably do own your favorite album on vinyl and you put it on your record player when when you want to chill out and, you know, really experience it in that way. Um, you know, you, you don't want Kanye going back in and, and uh, messing around with Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy and, you know, changing it so that you can't hear it in its original form. Um, you know, you don't want you don't want new Kanye coming in and messing up old Kanye's work or something. Um, whereas if you have something on, on the streaming services, uh, you know, artists can, can go in and, and change it. Um, but, uh, I mean, that's pretty rare, right? I mean, it's mostly just Kanye doing that. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to fix wolves. <laughs> I'll never forget that tweet. I'm going to fix wolves. Steve Jobs was wrong, you know, more globally about that point because I think he was neglecting to realize sort of the convenience factor and, just to be able to have an unlimited buffet of anything um, and you're only paying 10 bucks a month. I mean, you know, what is your, you know, and there've been studies on this, right? Like what is a consumer's willingness to pay for music? You know, how much are you spending per year? And um, you know, maybe in the old days you were going out and buying one CD a month. Um, how much better to just pay 10 bucks or 12 bucks or whatever it is. And then you have an essentially unlimited buffet forever. And, you know, I mean, Personally, I, like, I'm kind of lazy, you know, I, I just don't, I mean, I have a decent amount of vinyl, um, but you know, you, you got to like put the thing on and then, you know, and then it's like a 20, 20 minutes until the first side is over. And then you have to interrupt what you're doing like pretty quickly because it's spinning. You don't want the needle to wear, you know, it's just like a whole thing. Um, so, I mean, you really have to be dedicated to, you have to be in the mood. You can't take it with you. You can't sort of like move around the apartment with it. Um, so, you know, I, I think he was neglecting to think of the convenience factor and, you know, maybe he was letting his own sort of proclivities color the way he, he thought about things. And, you know, I get the sense that he was sort of an audiophile and, and, and cared a lot about, um, like, like, you know, the, the quality of, of the audio. I don't like, honestly, for most people, you know, you just, you just want to put the headphone in and, and have something going and you're not paying too much attention. Uh, you, you just, you just want to have a soundtrack to your life. And, um, I think that's probably where he miscalculated, not that it really ended up affecting Apple negatively in the long run, but, um, but it certainly led to, to, uh, to, to um, some big changes in the business after he died. I think it probably delayed Apple's entry into music streaming to some extent, because for most of the, tr most of the aughts, Apple led the music revolution. Apple was the ones. Jobs said where the industry was heading and everyone was like, all right, well, if we're going to say yes to anyone, we might as well say yes to you, right? Some of it was begrudging. There was clearly some debates there, but he led things. He passes and then Apple then shifts a bit more to following trends, not necessarily in a bad way, but we see that the strategy shifts a bit because by the time the early 2010s come along, Spotify is clearly gaining steam. They have their U.S. launch and they had already been working for a few years. SoundCloud is starting to gain traction. You're starting to see this whole SoundCloud rap um, culture continue to grow. So there's this music streaming movement happening, but Apple isn't quite with that. And then by that point, I think they do realize that, hey, we do need to get in the game. And very similar to 
the beginning of this story where Jobs and the Apple team sees this MP3 player in SoundJam MP and they want to get involved with that. They also see what Beats has been doing with Beats Music and the potential there and then more broadly with the Beats brand. Uh, very vividly when that transaction went down, I was flying to Italy for vacation with my now wife and, you know, it had been like rough stretch at work, just, you know, like very busy. And I was like, ah, oh, thank God I'm going to, you know, be off the clock for a while. And I, uh, I landed in Milan and like all these messages start coming up and it's like, Zach, did you see, uh, <laughs> that, that beats me, that beats got bought by Apple $3 billion. Is Dr. Dre a billionaire, blah, 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 blah. <clears throat> and I was like, I thought to my wife, I was like, all right, we're just going to have to hang out at the airport for a little while while I sort this out. And uh, yeah, I mean, what, what a what a whirlwind. I mean, the moment that that happened, um, you know, that I think that the way that the news leaked was that that video of Dr. Dre saying, you know, hip hop's first billionaire right here on the West Coast. You know, the whole thing. He's like, um, Tyree's like, the Forbes list just changed. You know, I'm like, oh, God, they're talking about my list i gotta i gotta make sure i got my numbers updated properly here so um but uh yeah i think i think actually apple was kind of freaked out um at at sort of you know because they obviously play everything very close to the vest and the idea that you know dr dre you know was sort of like leaking this tyrese and you know having uh, a grand old time and you know i think they were a little bit freaked out about what they were getting into and you know from what i understand the price was supposed to be 3.2 billion and it came down to three after that. So uh, that there was like maybe some frantic last minute negotiation, but, um, but yeah, you know, uh, it, contrary to popular belief, Dr. Dre never was actually a billionaire. Uh, he did sell his company for $3 billion, but by that point, I think he owned something like 20% of it. Um, and of course had to pay taxes on it and, and so on. And um you know, looking at his net worth over the years, he just got divorced. And so he's down to like 400 million or something like that. But he was pretty close. I think he got up to 800 million at some point. And, um, you know, but just like what that deal meant for hip hop and, and what it meant for, uh, you know, sort of a company like Apple embracing hip hop, um, you know, in the way that it did. Uh, just so meaningful. But, um, you know, I, I also remember how people at the time were speculating, you know, so like, what was the main reason that Apple made this transaction? Like they never go out and buy other companies. It's very rare. I guess SoundJam MP would be one example, but like they really have all this cash, but they rarely spend it um, on acquisitions. And so th there was a Bono quote at the time where he said, he said, basically, this is an aqua hire of Jimmy and Dre and like Trent Reznor and whoever else was uh, in the you know Beats Music fold at the time. And he was saying, you know, that Apple felt that this sort of three to five headed monster could help replicate or, or replace um, Steve Jobs in terms of like being the creative energy behind Apple and, you know, Apple's force in music and all that. Um, ultimately, I don't think that was true. I think they just wanted to create a streaming service and, you know, and it was Beats Music that that was what they were really after. It accelerated things for them. And if you just remember at the time, that timing was so clear because Apple Music launches summer 2015. I remember that time frame because it was right at the heat of the Meek Mill and Drake beef and Drake releases back to back. And they had the whole Meek Mill versus Drake playlist. 
um, there. So it, but the thing is, even if they waited a year later, it could have been a bit behind the fold because even a service like Pandora, they had launched their music streaming on demand. They finally got on demand in 2016. At that point, it was too late. So Apple was able to use its influence there to get to get ahead. But before I get to that, I do want to mention, um, I do want to um, highlight something you said about Jimmy because I think it's important. Back when U2 and jobs and and uh, bono had really started to connect jimmy was in those talks and he was talking about some of the artists he works with and clearly steve jobs was an audiophile music lover but it was more so the rock stuff like he really wanted the beatles catalog he really wanted u2 on the platform but he didn't know as much about hip-hop and there is this quote that may be a bit apocryphal now but after meeting with jimmy Iovine, he goes back to the apple people in the mid-2000s and they're like hey do you know about this really popular thing called hip-hop music it was like <laughs> something to that it was something to that extent but but then at that point we also see jimmy is clearly aligning himself with this company he had the relationship with jobs as well this acquisition happens they now bring him under the fold and we then start to see this transition of right before apple music launches but we're clearly at this interesting point so i do want to talk a little bit about where the industry is and then i do want to bring things back to youtube because i think we got to talk about that before we talk about the apple music uh and and that more deeply but the music industry at this point cds um digital downloads that were reaching their all-time high in um 2012 that was the peak year for that but the music industry is reaching its lowest point i think for apple in a lot of ways it wasn't enough to clearly push the industry forward so i think streaming has shown its ability to at least capture some of that revenue i think there's still some there but this period in the mid 2010s as streaming is starting to pick up and stream and clearly digital and online music listening is where things are really taking off. I think that's where artists are starting to try different and unique things to get their music out there. And this brings us back to you too, because they already had their partnership that they had with, um, with, with Vertigo and that album in 2004 with the special iPod launch. But then again, in 2014, it's time for them to release their album, Songs of Innocence. And they want to do things a little bit differently because this was around the time, you know, Jay-Z had had the partnership with Samsung um, for Magna Carta Holy Grail reaching that. And a few of these major artists were exploring different things of, hey, let me partner with this big company that has distribution big company, I want you to buy my album and then you distribute it directly to your fans. The Jay-Z way, granted, I know the Samsung app crash, I think was the better way to do this because you give fans the opportunity to opt in. The opt-in clearly crashed the app, but that's how they did it. The U2 way was quite different because there was no opt-in. Whether you liked or loved or didn't really care or even know about U2, you got that song of Innocence album. And again, Bono had a interesting quote about this in his interview that he had done with The Guardian because his thought was, hey, why can't you do this like Netflix? That's how he compared it to. Netflix buys the content. They distribute it to their people. Why can't you do it as well? And Bono's quote was, "What? but what was the worst that could happen? It would be like junk mail, wouldn't it? Like taking our bottle of milk leaving it on the doorstep of every house in the neighborhood. Not quite true. On September 9th, 2014, we didn't just put our bottle of milk at the door, but in every fridge in every town, 
In some cases, we poured it onto the good people's cornflakes. And some people like to pour their own milk and others are lactose intolerant. And this was, it's a funny quote, but this was a big experiment for Apple. So from the economics, Apple had paid you two an undisclosed amount of money, but we can imagine it's in the you know multiple millions of dollars. But Apple also paid $100 million just purely on marketing. Which is like a squishy term, Apple. right? Like, what does that really mean? They didn't, I don't think that they like took $100 million out of their budget and like paid for ads, right? I mean, it, I think I think that there's some like squishy value of media stuff and like, you know, um, but I remember that number being thrown around. I was like, that's kind of ridiculous, but okay, whatever, you know, but, but you know, point taken. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you were saying, yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair, especially if some of it, of course, it's on its own platforms and, and things like that. But yeah, I think it turned into a bit more of a PR blunder than they would have wanted. And for a band that I think did a pretty good job up to that point of continuing its legacy, I mean, I don't think that U2 even becomes a bit of the phenomenon that it did in the 2000s. I think Apple clearly helped that, but I know that they had some big moments, of course, especially after 9-11 and, you know, performing at the Super Bowl and some of those big moments and stuff, but Apple clearly helped. So it was a rare downturn or at least a rare PR blunder. But again, if it was $100 million or if it was $20 million, this is a couple of days worth of profits for this company at this point. And Tim Cook, who was CEO at the time, he said that he didn't blink about it. And Bono's quote that he said when he talked to Tim Cook about it was, Tim Cook said, you talked us into a, an experiment. We ran with it. It may not have worked, but we have to experiment because the music business in its present form is not working for everyone. Which I think it's a pretty fair, a fair quote. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, I was shocked that people were so pissed about this to receive a free album. I mean, it wasn't like it was taking up that much space. Like, how much space is it taking up on your, you know, whatever your digital storage is in, in you know, at, at that point in time, right? I mean, you know, this is like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. You know, no, nobody's like getting to the end of their digital storage capacity because there's a freaking YouTube album on their phone or something. So, I, and YouTube is just like so innocuous. I don't know. I, I like, I couldn't believe that people were, were so upset to have this free music. Um, and like, they're like, I can't delete it off my phone. Like, I don't know. I have like all kinds of stupid songs on my phone that I never listened to. So I, I, uh, I don't know. I, I thought it was, I thought it was bizarre how, how upset people were by it. But um, I think it does go to the the opt in. Um, people do do get pretty annoyed to be opted into something, even if it's you know a good album by an innocuous slash legendary Irish rock band. I think part of this too was. This happened, I don't want to say early social media, because social media was clearly around before, like 2013, 2014 timeframe. But I think it was early in people's understanding of the Instagram, like Twitter growth phase era of that social media culture and outrage culture and people speaking out and how the loud but mighty few that are quite vocal on platforms like Twitter and elsewhere can have an outsized impact, especially because so many journalists and people in the media are also active on those platforms. So you see a few viral posts that are being shared by tens of thousands of people. You think the whole world is pissed off about this thing, right? And so I think there was a little bit of the dynamic there where I don't know if 
quite as many people, they said, like, we're outraged. But this is something that I think we saw continue again with things, even as recent as I remember when Drake Scorpion had came out and they had that album on every Spotify playlist that I could think of. And people called up in arms to be like, this is what I'm paying $9.99 for. So this pattern did continue quite a bit. And that was even when Drake did not have a direct partnership with Spotify. He did have one with Apple Music, which we'll get into in a minute. But I think that the U2 one was part of, I think it also continued just with where internet culture was at the time. Yeah, no, I, I think that's uh, a great point. And, <clears throat> but I think just also the way it was framed, right? And, and you made the analogy to the Jay-Z album. If it's framed as, you know, we, the platform, have done this great thing for you, the consumer, of buying X million copies of this album and, and you know, making it available to you. Um, there's, you know, it has a feel of a limited edition drop. It's like, it's a little more sexy. It's not like everybody gets it, right? There, there's there's something a little more uh, rare to it. And and I think that's what Jay-Z nailed with that, with that launch, even though it was sort of like effectively the same thing, you did have to opt in, but, but there was almost like that created the buzz around it, like that, that created the demand. So I think, <clears throat> I think that it, if uh, you two had done it the same way with Apple, it would have been a whole different story and it would have actually, you know, turned out pretty well for both. Um, at the same time, you know, there's the old saying, any publicity is good publicity, whether the app crashes Samsung with, with Magna Carta Holy Grail or the U2, you know, there's all this backlash to it. I wonder if it ultimately just serves to elevate, you know, both the platform and the artist in terms of mentions and keep them in the news cycle and ultimately results in, in more sales overall for the album. So hard to figure that out, you know, uh, in, uh, from a numbers perspective, but I kind of, I kind of suspect that that's the case. Yeah, I think so too. I think it definitely, I think it definitely helped both. And it's funny because you two, I feel like definitely got a lot of hate from people that weren't U2 fans, but I don't think anyone like think about any time this band goes on tours and they sell out MetLife Stadium or any other stadium that they go to. I don't think anyone there is complaining about it. Think about all the people that are going to go see U2 in the sphere right now. I don't think those are the people that are complaining about it. So it's one of those things about, okay, who are the people that are really complaining about things? And sure, I know that I do want to talk about the Magna Carta one just a little bit because I know that that was a relatively smaller deal. Um, at least Jay-Z got $20 million, but it was interesting because – Five million of that was used to buy one million albums for five dollars a pop. So they did that, and then the opt-in happens there. And then he had a similar type of arrangement with Sprint for the four 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 album a couple of years later. So yeah, there was this period I think in the mid twenty tens where people started to get a bit more experimental with music and how things were released. And Apple Music was part of this as well because this is when streaming exclusives were a thing, and this was a big part of their strategy because they do a deal with Drake to have the launch of Apple Music. And I believe it was rumored to be a $19 million partnership. Drake then launches a few exclusive albums on the platform. He had, if you're reading this, it's too late. He had What a Time to Be Alive, the joint mixtape with Future. And then he has Views. And 2016, that's when you have all of these exclusive albums that are being released. And I think that helps Apple capture some market share because, yes, Spotify is growing, but Apple has the superstars over here. They have exclusive partnerships with Chance the Rapper, um, who's really popular at the time. They got um, 
with a few other artists as well. But, you know, everything changes after the whole Frank Ocean, Blonde and Endless thing. And it's just interesting to look back. And I did want to talk to you about this because that it was an interesting time in music streaming. But I feel like that was probably the last time. I don't want to say the last time. Apple has tried to do a few unique things there. But I feel like that kind of put a whole jolt in Apple strategy and to be honest, a lot of the stuff that Jimmy Iovine was trying to push at the time because he was trying to run things and work a little bit more like a record label exec where you're willing to spend up and pay up for the big names and all of the things that they're being evaluated on. And Apple being a technology company didn't necessarily vibe in that kind of way. So there was a little bit of, little bit of conflict there. Yeah, but at the same time, it kind of goes back to the the entire thread that we've been talking about here of Apple and the music business, right? It's like <clears throat> everything that Apple does in music is sort of a loss leader for its other products. And, you know, Apple is a technology company and they've got all this cash on hand. Uh, why not go out and, you know, bring in Drake or whoever else, $19 million, who cares? If that's going to get that many more people on your platform, which is then going to get that many more people to buy iPods or iPhones or MacBooks or, you know, uh, eventually just be in that ecosystem one way or another, uh, it's absolutely worth it. And, and I think they figured out that music is part of their funnel and, you know, exclusives were a way of doing that. And, and of course, the music business also eventually realized that, um, you know, exclusives were not necessarily great for the music business more broadly. And, and kind of, you know, Lucian Grange put a bit of a kibosh on that. And um, and now we're not seeing it so much anymore. But um, but it makes so much sense as a thing that Apple could do. And, you know, also at the same time, you could see why Spotify being um, being a startup that, I mean, I guess it's not a startup, it's a publicly traded giant, but it's like nowhere near the size of Apple. And, um, you know, it, you could see why it's a little harder for Spotify to compete with, you know, that kind of cash being thrown around. Yeah, agreed 100%. I I also think Apple had a few interesting things that happened around the launch time, but also as well when they were pushing things. So Apple, they got into live radio as well with Beats One. That was part of the partnership there. And they teamed up with Zane Lowe to handle things on the UK side. They teamed up with Ebro Darden from Hot 97. They handled things in the US side. And they clearly you know, have plenty of overlap there. And those two are still working with the company today. And even at the initial launch of Apple Music, um, Taylor Swift had wrote that letter because she was picking up on the fact that there was a free three-month trial to sign up for Apple Music. And then she had asked, okay, well, are artists going to be, rights holders going to be paid for that? And they said no. So then she had wrote this letter. She made it public. And then within a few hours, Apple then responds and changes the policy and they ended up paying the rights holders at a reduced rate there. But I think it ended up being a huge awareness thing for Apple Music, kind of similar to how we we're talking about the U2 thing earlier, where these quote unquote controversies end up being great earned media for everyone that's involved. And then I think another thing too, just talking you know, more about like where Apple is right at where Apple Music is in the ecosystem, Tim Cook has been on the record and saying, we're not in it for the money with it being Apple music because it is the loss leader that just helps you sell all these other things. And then even Apple music's head, I'll, Olivia Schusser had said that they'd rather be the best service than the biggest service, obviously comparing things to Spotify there. And just with some initial numbers that had seen some of these are estimates because Spotify is the only company that's necessarily sharing its, um, 
public uh, subscriber numbers. So they estimate that Apple is currently at um, 102 million um, paid users globally, which is just under half of what Spotify is at with 205 uh, million users paid globally. So even if you do some rough math there, we could be generous. And even if you assume that the average spot or the, or the average Apple Music user is paying, let's say, seven fifty dollars an average revenue per user, I think even that's high, seven to $8 billion worth of annual revenue, that's still less revenue than Apple makes on AirPods. And that's just one device that you can listen to through all the things there. So no, yeah, we're going to be talking about yeah. AirPods. My gosh, yeah. I know, right? <laughs> like, so, and, and that's just like one thing there. So clearly we see that I think Apple Music clearly doing a bunch of things. They've been a sponsor now for the Super Bowl halftime show for a couple of years. But again, the company is most effective in the same way that iTunes was where, yes, it can generate revenue, but it really helps you sell these expensive hardware uh, products. Absolutely. And, you know, just when you think that uh, you don't, you know, need another pair of, you know, AirPods, then they, they come out with a new one and, and then you find yourself uh, paying for it and having your initials like monogrammed on it or something like, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Why does this keep happening? But that's the genius of it. How many AirPods have you had? Maybe this is my third pair. I think I had one of these before and then I lost it, bought other ones. So maybe now that's my third, but I had the first generation AirPods and then I got these and then I, I lost it and I bought another pair. So, you know, I, yeah, I think... I lost one AirPod. That's the most annoying thing because then you have to get the whole tape. I think they do sell individual AirPods, but um, how the hell did I lose one? I don't know. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. I hear you, man. <laughs> I'm also on my third pair of these. One I had gotten as a gift. The other I went to a free event and they were giving them out. And then I had bought the AirPod 3s maybe a year or so ago. So, yeah, these are the current ones I had. But, yeah. They, they get you in. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great product. I can't even, I can't even knock it. Um, yeah. Well, if Tim Cook's listening, though, they got to figure out how to fix that problem of like, you're trying to get it to talk to your computer, but it's talking to your phone. And that has been an issue at setting up for this recording several times. So <laughs> Tim, let's, let's get moving on it. All right. <laughs> I know. Right. Before we get to some of these um, questions we normally do at the end, I did want to ask you this. I, I realized I didn't prompt you for this one, but what do you think Jobs would say about Apple's current place in music? Um, you know, I think all in all, he would say, uh, yeah, everything went according to plan. I really do wonder what he would say about streaming. If he would be like, oops, my bad. Or if he would have been like, guys, you screwed it up. Um, you should have stuck with the ownership model. You know, look what's going on. Uh, there are all these applications of blockchain, you know, where, where you can actually have ownership of music over, you know, uh, like, I mean, if you look at something like, um, I, I know this is not very sexy anymore, but NFTs, you know, was that, was like the idea of an NFT album, you know, would Steve Jobs have sort of like pushed that more in a direction where, where that became, you know, uh, an, on, an ongoing concern instead of just fading away? Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I sort of, I sort of don't think it's in, in his nature to say, oops, my bad. I think he would have said, like, you should have stuck with the ownership model longer somehow. I, I don't know. I, I, um, it's, it's kind of escaping me how, how that would have worked when clearly what people want is streaming. But uh, yeah, that's, that's my analysis of Steve. <laughs> I think he would have stuck to his guns because even though streaming has clearly saved this industry, I think there would be a 
little part of him that would be like, oh, I told you so with some of the current fights that are happening right now with regards to the record labels feeling like they want certain changes to be done with how streaming payout with how streaming payouts happen and some of the negotiations that they're having with the digital service providers whether it's wanting certain songs to be prioritized and things like that but feeling like they don't have leverage over spotify and the stream providers and then meanwhile spotify itself knowing that it has more control on pricing and stuff like that but it's trying to get other content on its platform that they can better monetize as well so music still ends up getting squeezed to some extent. I think there's part of him that even though I don't necessarily agree with the mentality that could have been like, well, if you never went down this road to begin with, you wouldn't be in this situation. But the challenge is that, yeah. So as Apple continued to grow again, Apple accrued the value, but the music industry didn't in the same type of way. So I have a feeling that who knows if there may have been this set solution and yeah, Apple itself still may have went with it, but I think almost in the way that, Jimmy Iovine can share a few comments every now and then. And sometimes I think he has some support and other times people can kind of like roll their eyes to some extent and think, okay, here's the, you know, elder statesman with the back in my day mentality. I do wonder if jobs would get a little bit of that. And I know it's a bit odd to say, just given how revered this person is, but a lot's changed in the world since 2011 and the perceptions of people can change. So that's, that's my take. Wish, I wish we could find out the answer, but... Uh, I know. Well, yeah. I know. Do you think that there is a dark horse move that Apple made in its journey through music that doesn't get enough credit? I would kind of go back to the U2 Songs of Innocence album, and it was so close to being so good, you know? And all they needed to do was flip it from um, an opt out to an opt in or to do something more like Jay-Z. It, it was, you know what I mean? It was like almost perfect. Uh, and I think that it, you know, they could have had the experience that Jay-Z had with Samsung, except it would have been more than 5 million albums and it wouldn't have crashed because it's Apple. And I think it would have really catapulted them in a way, um, you know, which would have been really important given how early that was in the, Apple Music journey uh, and you know gaining market share against Spotify, um, it's just it's hard to catch up. I think uh, they could have made a lot more headway with that one. So um, I guess that's more of a missed opportunity than a dark horse, but maybe it was a hybrid. Um, you know, I, I think it was a really good idea, and they just didn't quite stick the landing. I think you're right because if it worked, you could have replicated that with other artists, but. The PR image of, oh, well, you don't want to do the U2 thing. So it just doesn't happen again. And just because that timing was so clear where you're clearly in this transition space where people were trying a lot of stuff in the late 2000s, or early 2010s. Record labels are trying to offer 360 deals. Jay-Z and Madonna are doing direct deals with Live Nation and Companies like Apple are letting you distribute your music directly and Jay-Z's partnering with cell phone companies to release his album. Like people were trying different things and it wasn't quite as, I think, standardized as things can generally seem even today to some extent. And if they were able to nail that in the ways that you said, I still don't know if that would necessarily have stopped the adoption of or, or Apple music happening. I still think there is enough inertia for that to happen, but there clearly was, I think more opportunity in terms of like where things are heading. So I agree with you hundred percent there. 
I think the dark horse move that I'll talk about is um, I think that the iPod and the iPhone itself get a lot of the credit, but I don't know if iTunes itself and, you know, the music store and everything else just gets enough credit. We've already talked about a number of the things there, but I think it's the platform that had the biggest impact and it brought us closer to where consumers actually wanted. Obviously, streaming brought it all the way there, but it reduced some of the friction and just some of the, you know, bad incentives that could clearly be manipulated with buying full albums. And it got you one step closer by just buying, whether as you put it, the humping track or the two dance songs or whatever it is, buy what you want and that's yours to keep. Yeah, and I think it's easy for people to sort of think like, oh, well, that, you know, that thing has, has gone away now, right? Like the, the I forget, when, when did the iTunes store close? It was like a few years ago, right? It was like a big, um, yeah. there was like some big deal made. That they it, like folded it into Apple Music and like a few other services. And the App Store. So is did it really close or did it just get kind of subsumed? You know, but, um, but because sort of the iTunes music store does not exist in, you know, in a, as a standalone thing anymore, it's easy to say, okay, well, you know, that, that thing wasn't really that um, important, but, uh, but I really do think, yeah, it, it paved the way for all these other things and, and it has been subsumed into, into all these other things that are now so critical to the music business. So I think that's a great take. Yeah. No, thanks. And then I know for missed opportunity, you shared in general, just, yeah, they could just nail the opt-in um, for what they did with songs of innocence with you too. Well, so yeah, I, I guess I, I had built that as a as a dark horse move, and then it kind of came out more as a misopportunity. But, but the misopportunity was Apple didn't go harder on streaming earlier, right? And we know why that was. Steve Jobs didn't believe in it. But if Apple had gone hard on streaming earlier, you know, around the time Spotify came out, or even earlier, right? It, I mean, it could have. Um, you know, I think we might be looking at a totally different um, ecosystem. But again, maybe it doesn't really matter because, you know, if, if Apple is getting 30% off the top of every Spotify subscription anyway, uh, you know, and, and it just is a loss leader to get people into the ecosystem. The other missed opportunity I thought about, I talked about this a little bit, the way that exclusives ended on Apple Music, that did feel like in some ways the end of Apple Music feeling like it was like head to head with Spotify from from that perspective i think it helped them gain a lot of market share it was cool to see apple really lean into hip-hop uh, culture and artists to grow in that type of way and i think it was cool so definitely shout out to you know larry jackson and eddie q and the team that had helped make that happen but i have to wonder could this have played out differently obviously frank ocean highlighted the issue in the platform because you're partnering directly with the artist on this and the artist completes their deal gives you a eh, okay album then drops their masterpiece a day later when they do it directly by doing it through the service but if you're able to find some way and especially now that the record labels feel like they don't have any leverage on any of these streaming services who could have been the one service that could have said something to the effect of hey our differentiator as a DSP is, okay, let's position our service as the quote-unquote HBO. The same way that, you know, Olivia Schuster, the current head, had said they don't want to be the best or they don't want to be the biggest. They want to be the best. Well, if you want to be the best, how do you just make sure that you have more of that exclusive content that could be on your platform? What if you then partner directly with the labels on that and the labels – like? already had a history of saying yes to Apple and saying no to others. 
could that have be could that have had an even more stronger opportunity of having things expand the way that it could have for Apple. I mean, I'll say as a consumer, I necessarily wouldn't have liked needing to subscribe to multiple streaming services to listen to everything that I like the same way that I have to do for TV. But for Apple, it would have made perfect sense because that's how Apple operates in literally every other way. How can we make our things proprietary and make it a pain in the ass for any other platform that's trying to use this thing? So if it wasn't necessarily, okay, yes, Frank Ocean does this thing, Lucian gets upset, and the whole industry gets upset, and they say, no, we're done with this. But could you have found some way to partner with them? You want to be the best. The labels have the quote-unquote HBO-level content here. You get exclusive rights to stream their content, and then that makes it difficult for all the other DSPs. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. But also, I think just for the consumer, it starts to get confusing, and you know who's got the exclusive now and it's is it apple or spotify or title or is it like samsung or is it some other thing and you know i think you start to get into this um this like morass of options which is plaguing tv right now and it's like you know you, you're trying to watch a freaking baseball game and you know it's like oh no this one's on espn plus but this one's on paramount plus this one's on everything you know it's like the, the unbundling has gone so far that um you know, the whole point was that it was easier than cable and, and, you know, you could, you could have more consumer freedom and so forth, but man, like much easier ultimately uh, to have one cable box with a bunch of different channels than to have to figure out, you know, on, you know, go through your smart TV and figure out all the, uh, the different services that you need to, to watch a, a given baseball game or TV show or something like that. So I think similarly with music, it was getting to the point where it was so crowded um, that it was beginning to have like a, you know, sort of like um, a counter effect. And, you know, I think could ultimately lead to a lot more uh, legal downloading. Um, and I think it was, you know, in some cases when, you know, when somebody had a really hot exclusive out and it would come out on YouTube and, you know, it would get taken down, but you could at least for a hot second, you know, go listen to the thing for free uh, when somebody ripped it onto YouTube. And we haven't really even talked about YouTube, which, you know, probably in terms of like where people listen to music is the, you know, m most music, like more tracks are listened to on YouTube in a given day than anywhere else. Um, but it's, you know, it's not through YouTube music or, or any of their sort of premium channels. It's just like some bootleg video, or, you know, maybe it's a music video that's not bootleg, but anyway, that's a whole other story. Uh, I, I do think that the, the whole beauty of Apple music and, and sort of um, the way things have gone is that, you know, with Apple in general and music is over, over time, they've gotten more streamlined, less complicated and the exclusive work on it. Yeah, I think you're right. I did want to talk it through, but I think you're right because yeah, I know as a consumer, I would have hated it. And I do think that, and I've written about this before, but I do think that the difference in video, because obviously video is clearly having problems with, as you put it, the morass of different services out there, but audio does tend, it could be a more passive experience. And with passive experiences, I, and it's a passive exper experience and the content is much shorter. And I think because of that, it lends itself to leaving something in the background and then, you know, going about your thing and not being like, oh, this four minute song ended. Okay, let me go hop over to Apple Music to go listen to Frank Ocean Blonde. Oh, this ended. Okay, let me hop on the title to listen to Beyonce Formation. Oh, now let me go back to whatever else. Like, I think it would have been a bit tougher in a way where, yeah, I think it's easier to be like, okay, yeah, 
I just watched one hour of The Last of Us on HBO, and now it's time for something else, like an hour past, you feel maybe a bit more natural popping over to Netflix to watch whatever Netflix exclusive, The Gray Man, or whatever they have currently that they're pushing right now. But yeah, yeah. so I, I think I think that's I think that's a good point. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, sure. um, in terms of the biggest winners or losers here, this is tough because obviously Apple itself won dramatically through its journey through music. But is there anyone in particular that sticks out as, oh, yeah, they really won through Apple's journey? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Apple itself is, I think, the obvious winner, right? Um, despite not being predominantly in the content business, they made a ton of money off of content, right? Uh, using it to sell hardware and, and and all sorts of things. So yeah, I mean, going from a, you know, whatever it was, $8 billion market cap in, in the late nineties or something to being worth a couple trillion bucks. Now that we've, you know, over the course of this episode, we've proven that that probably would not have been possible without music. So like, yeah, I think Apple's the biggest winner, you know, of the individuals within that group, like, you know, Jimmy and Dre for sure. Maybe not Steve Jobs because he, when he came back to Apple, didn't actually have that much equity um, and I think that his, his, uh, his net worth was actually tied up in, was it DreamWorks or something? Um, yeah, so, so, uh, you know, but he won in other ways. Um, you know, I mean, I think, I think probably, although Apple itself won more than the music industry, um, the current mode is a lot better for the music industry than like Napster. So, <laughs> you know, that's, that's definitely, uh, that's like a, a another winner there. Um, yeah, I think I just keep coming back to Apple itself. You know, when you look at how, how, how it was able to le leverage music to sell other stuff, uh, I think they're my big winner. I don't know. How about you? Yeah, I feel like there's a few people that come to mind with this that have just clearly continued to benefit. Um, I think about I think about, of course, Jobs for all the reasons that we've mentioned. I think about Bono for obvious reasons. I think about Jimmy. Um, and then I think even Tim Cook as well for some of the continued experimentation and being willing to be like, hey, I know that Jobs was against this and I know that this company is his baby in a number of ways, but this is what we're continuing to to do there. So, yeah. So I'll say that. Um, and then I do think, like you said, the company itself, just because a lot of other services tried to get Apple or tried to get the music industry's exclusive content. The industry said no, but they said yes to Apple. So there is clearly the attraction there. On the other side, though, with losers or people that necessarily didn't capture as much, this one's a little bit tougher. I mean, yeah. Did anyone come to mind for you? Or companies as well? I guess it doesn't have to be people. Uh, the Zune, <laughs> you know, Microsoft, I mean, Microsoft's doing it right too, but, um, you know, given where Microsoft was in relation to Apple in the nineties, uh, nobody would have ever thought that, you know, Apple would be worth so much more than Microsoft now, but you know, uh, th that Apple is worth more than Microsoft is not something that anybody would have bet. I think in the, in the nineties, right. I mean, in the late nineties, given where, where, um, where Apple was. And I think that what, you know, caused Apple to really be able to close that gap was the way that it embraced music. And, you know, for, for like every punchline of the Zune, uh, there was, there was some great thing that Apple did with music. And it's also just a more relevant company in terms of the culture, right. Um, you know, even beyond market cap and, you know, the numbers, it's like, you know, Apple, 
Apple is more visible. Apple is just like out there. Yeah, and that's the part that really is fa fascinating. Just thinking again about where this company was in 1997 and the single product lines of what those products make in a quarter being bigger than the market cap that that current that that company now has now. Or, do you know what I mean? And I, I just keep thinking about what that modern analogy would be like today. It would be like if Pandora had all of a sudden decided to get into gaming, let's say, and then by the end of the 20 or the beginning of the 2030s or the middle of the 2030s, Pandora is as big as Blizzard and Activision are <laughs> in gaming and is in the same conversations as Epic Games and others, just in terms of leading with where like things are going. I mean, maybe Epic Games isn't the best example. They just laid off 16% of the staff, but that's like what we're talking about here and how impressive all of this is. But yeah, um, this was a fun one, but before we wrap things up, anything else on Apple and its journey through music? I think, I think we hit everything. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Thank you. This was fun. Now I'm going to see if I can go dig up any old iPods I have and see which ones I can put on eBay and go sell them. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Love it. Me too. All right. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Send it to one or two people you think would really get value out of listening to this episode. And while you're at it, if you could rate and review the show, that would be great. Rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Rate the podcast on Spotify. Rate the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. That helps make sure that the word gets out about Trapital and what we're building here. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you next time.